Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we're going to do intro to Hebrews tonight. We're going to go through the book of Hebrews. So here we are. We're starting a new year. Last year at this time, we started the book of Acts. And some of our thinking was that, boy, Acts was a new time, new era. The church had to, the, the, the people of God had to embrace new ways of doing things. And so we talked about how the church really needed to look at things in new ways. As, as, as part of our understanding why Focus is such a different kind of church from the other churches out there. Why we're so focused on the house churches, on the small groups. Um, and a lot less focused, a lot less focused on the larger gatherings like this. Interestingly enough, we started that, talking about those things, and then the church had to learn how to do new things uh, because the, the virus hit and churches were, uh, in order to protect our people, many of us chose not to meet um, in large gatherings. And so the real question of what is a church, it really fit as we were going through Acts and we were looking at what's new. So this year, as we're looking at Hebrews, what I wanted to do was just focus on the, the, the superiority of the new covenant. And this is what the book of Hebrews talks about, is that, that Christ is superior to Moses, and the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And I just wanted to embrace that, because and I wanted to talk about what that really means and think about it, because the truth is that Christ is superior to all the other answers in our life. And sometimes I think even as Christians, we get a little hesitant to see that. Certainly for those of you who aren't believers, that will be a challenge for you. And you know, I'm not expecting you will necessarily agree with me. Um, right off the bat, but we're going to share with you at least the perspective of the Jews who were the ones who had the most to lose by embracing Jesus as the Messiah and kind of see why they did. So tonight, so we're going to go through the whole book of Hebrews. It's a very complex book. There's, it's written by someone who clearly had a um, sort of a, an intellectual approach uh, for, for a specific reason we'll talk about today. But I think the basic message is still very clear. And so we're going to walk through it, and we're going, to, we're going to tackle the entire book, and I think it'll be a nice series for us going forward. Tonight, just to get us set up for it, we're just going to intro it. We're just going to introduce it. I've, I've committed to not going as long as my longest teachings last year. Um, the Advent time, we're all about 15 or 20 minutes. We'll probably go a little beyond that, but I do want to try to, to keep it uh, shorter because I think we can absorb more. And we've got time. We're in for this little for the long haul. So tonight we're just going to do the intro. We're not even going to begin the first chapter. We're going to set the stage and talk a little bit about it. And I think that's useful and helpful. Um, And usually when we're reading any book of the Bible, particularly when we're reading any of the letters, and this is what's called an epistle. It's one of the letters in the New Testament that is written from somebody to somebody. So it's a very specific format um, in general. And And it's that kind of thing. When you write a letter, that's different than writing a story. Or it's different than writing a biography. Or it's different than writing a poem, right? When you write a letter... You're trying to communicate something specific to specific people. And so when we look at the letters, one of the things we like to do is ask, who wrote it and who is it written for? Um, or who wrote it and to whom is it written? Uh, for my daughter who's here nearby. Um, and so uh, that's the question. Well, interestingly enough, a lot of letters, that's an easy question. Because in a lot of letters, just like you would expect in your letters, there's a dear, to, and a from. And so you kind of know right in there it says. So Paul does that all the time from Paul and Timothy to the church at Corinth. Uh, But, interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us. The author of Hebrews gives us no indication. It does not reveal within its writing who it's written to or who it's written from. We have named it Hebrews, um, and you'll see why that's a good guess. That's a good reason to think it's written to Hebrews. But the author himself doesn't tell us. 
Um, and that's because, for obvious reasons, the people you're writing to knew who it was from, and he knew, they knew who they were. So they didn't have to sort of wrestle with that. And clearly this author, even though he's writing a letter, he isn't using the form of a letter that Paul uses throughout. He's not using the traditional Greek form. And there's a reason for that. Um, but so to think, though, to understand who's writing it, and we don't know who exactly it is, but the, script, the content of the book does give us some hints as to the type of person who wrote it. And the content of the book gives us a pretty clear indication to whom it's written. So we're going to start with why it was written. In order to understand who it was written to and who wrote it, we're going to start with the why. So let's talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews and what the purpose was. So here's the thing to remember. For thousands of years, Hebrews, by the way, is, is another name for the Jews, right? The, the, the Israelites who grew up under the, the descendants of Abraham, who are both a, a race, they're descendants of Abraham, but they're also a, a religion. They're, they're this understanding that they're God's people. And they respond specifically to that. So think about these people. Think about the Jews or the Hebrews who for thousands of years, literally thousands of years, their whole life has been centered around this covenant that they have with God. And this covenant is based upon uh, really two people, maybe three, are, are kind of the, the real pinnacles of this covenant. One is Abraham. The covenant begins because God approaches Abraham and promises and makes some promises to him about a nation that will come, about how that nation will bless everyone, about how God will work with that nation. When Moses comes along, he actually, God reveals through him, sort of a, what we, a very direct covenant, or what we might call a contract. He works out, he, he lets them know, this is how it's going to work. And in this covenant with God, the point is that God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that means I'll take care of you, that means that I'll protect you, that means I'll fight your battles for you. It's a big deal to say, I will be your God. But there is a, another side to this covenant with the, with the uh, Israelites. So they go into the desert, and you probably know the story. Maybe you've seen the Ben-Hur movie, uh, the Ben-Hur movie. The Ten Commandments movie, Ben-Hur movie, is a good movie too, but not what I meant. I meant the Charlton Heston movie. Uh, maybe you've seen that. And so they go into the desert, and Moses goes up on a mountain, and God gives them a revelation of what we call the Ten Commandments, but really it's much more than that. It's, it's the law of God. It's a whole bunch. It's more commandments than ten. And, and the, the deal that God makes is this. The covenant is this. You will be my people, and you are to represent me to the rest of the nations, to the rest of the world. So when you do what I want you to do, then everybody will know that you are doing what I would do. You will reflect me. So when you love your enemies, and you love your neighbors, and you, and you, you, you treat people the way I want you to treat them, and you're ethical, and you're honest, and you're, you, you're righteous, and you're sexually pure, and you're, you're pure in other ways keep things separated. He says, when, they, when you do that, I will bless you. And people will see that you're blessed. And this is how the whole world understood things, right? They all had their own gods. And when things went well, they said, God must have done it. When things didn't go well, they said they didn't. So God says, knowing this is how everyone thinks, we're going to show them who I am by blessing you when you do what I think is good and by not blessing you, when they, when, by disciplining you when you do what is bad. And that was the covenant. You follow these laws, you'll be blessed. You don't follow these laws, you won't be blessed. And, but it was a very, that, that, that didn't feel to the Hebrews um, unfair. That, in fact, felt like a blessing. Because God didn't have to make this covenant with them at all. He's the one who said, I will be your God. And, of course, throughout the Old Testament, God shows himself to be incredibly patient. 
And they rarely keep up their end of the deal, but God always keeps up his end of the deal. But here's the point. For thousands of years, the Jews have lived with this covenant. And they have understood that what Abraham did, what Moses said, and a little bit of what David did, he would be the third one that might be in this mix. These were their pinnacles. These were their ideas of what the covenant was. But there was also this other piece that exists throughout the entire Old Testament, and it seems to be part of the covenant, but it was a little hard to grasp. It was a little bit slippery for them to understand, and it would have been for us too. It's just the nature of it. The other aspect of this covenant is that God kept saying there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a hero who will come, and it will ultimately lead you to the blessing. That he's going to come and he's going to help you guys do what's right, and he's going to help you do the right things, and he's going to help you follow the laws of the covenant, and he is going to bring you the blessing. So they were waiting for the Messiah, for the hero. They thought maybe David was the Messiah, but David died, right? And so, well, they didn't last forever. After David died, they had some of their worst moments. The kingdom fell apart. They ended up being exiled. They ended up basically losing the nation altogether. So that wasn't sort of the Messiah they were waiting for. David was a picture of it, they thought, but he wasn't the Messiah. So they are waiting. So they've got these two things going on in their head. On the one hand, there's this covenant that is so central to who they are. Even when they're split up and they have no nation, it is this covenant as God's people that keeps their identity together. It is actually amazing how for thousands of years the identity of Israel, of the Jews, has been preserved even when they haven't had a homeland, even when they haven't been together. And it's, it's a miracle of God, and it's also because of this covenant of God. Okay, so this is their linchpin. This is what holds them together. So even when they're under Roman rule and, and they're being oppressed by the Romans, it's this covenant that they cling to. The temple, the, 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 the feasts, the festivals, the, the laws, these are what they do. And some of the most powerful leaders were the, the people like the Pharisees, who we may think of as a bad rap, but honestly, they were clinging very strongly to what had always made them who they were. And they were working to preserve that. There were others that did that, the Sadducees did that, the Essenes, but all of it comes back to this covenant. The reason I went into all that is because now I want you to picture what it must have been like for them when the Messiah arrives and he starts claiming things that make them choose between the Old Covenant and this Messiah. They never anticipated that the Messiah would say things that sounded to them, now this isn't exactly what happened, we'll, we'll see this when we go through Hebrews, but it sounded very much to many of the Israelites as if what Jesus was saying was that you have to dispense with the Old Covenant. And that, that I'm somehow, now this is true, but he said I'm somehow superior to Moses and Abraham and David. And in my superiority, I'm telling you, this is where we're going. And so they felt forced into a corner of deciding, do we, do we, do we give up what we've been for thousands of years in order to embrace this new Messiah? Or is that in and of itself faithless on our part? Is that heresy? Is that blaspheme to embrace the Messiah and give up on everything that's been who we are for thousands of years? I really want you to kind of see that dilemma, how difficult that is, because that is the situation that Jesus put them in. When he came to them and said things like, before Abraham was, I am. Boy, he is challenging everything they understand about Abraham, right? And and when he says, I'm greater than Moses, man, he is really challenging everything they said. If you look in the Gospels, these are the moments at which they wanted to execute Jesus for blasphemy, because this was challenging literally everything about who they were. So this is the difficulty. We have then a group of, of Jews, a group of Hebrews, a group of Israelites who are wrestling with this. They have accepted, they've learned about Jesus being the Messiah. They've been persuaded to a fairly strong degree that he is the Messiah, 
but they are really wrestling with how it can be that they have to let go of one thing in order to grab the other. And if they let go of the thing which has defined them for thousands of years, then what do they have left? Then how can they possibly do that? And so they want both, but they feel forced into a position where they have to choose one or the other. And they're unwilling to say that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, but they're unwilling to say the old covenant makes Jesus irrelevant. So how do they put this together? This is the audience. Because we know that this is the audience because we can see that what the point of the book is, the letter, is that it's being written to answer these questions. To give them a perspective which reconciles this problem that they have of how do they let go of the old and cling to the new without calling the old bad. And so this is why we know that this is the focus of the letter, so we know it's written to those Hebrews. We know it's written to those Jews, people who have accepted Jesus as Messiah on one level. Mexico, we would gather that those, uh, actually the other way around, if you leave New Mexico and then you send greetings to people who are displaced Mexicans, we know you're writing to New Mexicans. So that's what he's doing. They're probably Hebrews in Italy. Um, so now the question is, uh, who's writing this book? Who is writing this letter to them? Well, you can probably sort of figure this out. Who would be most inclined and best qualified to write this to? Would it be uh, a Gentile like Luke? Um, would it be somebody who didn't have a respect for the Old Covenant? Would that be the best person to really get a hold of them and help them understand? I don't think so. In fact, what we see is that the, this is written by a Jew who, like them, respects the Old Covenant. It's a Jew who understands the value of it, not someone who doesn't, who easily dispenses with it. But it is also someone who has embraced Jesus as the Messiah as superior to the Old Covenant. And so it's written by somebody who wants to be able to say to them, I, I admire and love and respect the Old Covenant as good and valuable and, and from God. But I also understand that Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant and that he is superior to Moses and Abraham and David. And what, the, what he wants to do is say, as a Jew writing to Jews, I want to show you how from the Old Testament, it's always told us the Messiah would be superior. That it's always told us that the Old Covenant is inferior, not because there's something missing in it, but because its purpose is to direct you to the new covenant. It's inferior in the same way that a map is inferior to the destination, right? If I want to go to Santa Fe and I have a map that leads me to Santa Fe, once I get to Santa Fe, the point is I'm in Santa Fe. That's what I want to focus on. If I spend all my time looking at the map while I'm in Santa Fe and not looking at Santa Fe itself, I'm going to miss all the cool stuff. But that doesn't mean the map is bad, and it doesn't mean the map is lacking anything. It means the map did exactly what it was supposed to do. And I honor the map as a really good map that got me to Santa Fe. But Santa Fe is where I want to be. And that's how he describes the Old Covenant. That the Old Covenant is valuable, it's beautiful, it's really well designed for the purpose of bringing you to Jesus, to the New Covenant. So of course Santa Fe is better than the map. And Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. But that doesn't mean the Old Covenant wasn't from God. And it doesn't mean it didn't have a really beautiful purpose. But it's important to understand what's the destination and what was the means to that destination.
much as Paul talks about another Jew who respected the Old Covenant, Jew talks about the, uh, Paul talks about the Old Covenant as being a tutor to lead us to Christ, a teacher to lead us to Christ. And the author of Hebrews doesn't just say that. He's actually going to go through the Old Testament and show them, see here where it said this? Well, what do you think it was talking about? Oh, it was talking about how the Messiah is going to be superior. Oh, it was talking about how this covenant is temporary. Oh, it was talking about how the new covenant is going to be better. So by using the, the scriptures, he helps them understand. His goal is to help the Hebrews understand they're not violating or betraying God. They're actually digging into the purposes of God in the Old Covenant. And it's a, it's a really beautiful thing he does. The other thing we know about this author, he or she, could be a woman, we don't really know. But the other thing we know about this author is that they also are very, very smart. They're very intellectual. They, they, they have a brain that works kind of on this high-powered level. Um, and so that's why it's, there's a lot of complexity. He's able to, that they're able to actually grab all this information from the Old Testament and put it out there in a way which sort of shows all the beauty of the New Covenant to come. So we don't know who the author is, but I want to suggest that he is someone like uh, a character that we do see in the, in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And I want to read this example to you, not because I think he necessarily is the author of Hebrews, although my personal pet theory is that he could be, but I don't know that he is. But, but I want to read it to you because I think whoever it is, is someone like this. So as we read this about this person, I want you to recognize this is the kind of person that wrote the book of Hebrews. So here's what we have. It's in Acts 18, and it says this. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. What's fascinating about this is that Apollos sounds very much like the Hebrews are reading about. He's, he's heard the teaching of Jesus and he accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's only gotten as far as the baptism of John, meaning he's not quite ready to embrace Jesus as superior. But he understands how the Messiah is predicted from the Old Testament, so he sees the connections. And it's Priscilla and Aquila who do for him what the author of Hebrews is doing for the Hebrews, who help him see more accurately and more adequately how Jesus is actually superior to the Old Testament and worth embracing beyond the baptism of John. It goes on. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him when he arrived. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, providing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So we know that what Apollos does is he takes what he's learned from Priscilla and Aquila, he takes his own learning and respect as a Jew for the Old Covenant, and he puts them together, and he does, he does exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing, which is he goes to the Jews and he explains to them from the scriptures why we know that Jesus is the Messiah and why that is worth embracing. So it may not be Apollos that writes the, the book of Hebrews, but it's somebody like Apollos. Uh, maybe it's Aquila or Priscilla. It's somebody like Apollos. The reason we don't suspect it's Paul is because Paul writes in a different format. He writes in a Greek letter in the form of a Greek letter. Notice the book of Hebrews is not written in the form of a Greek letter, and you can probably guess why. Because he's not writing to Greeks. And he wants to emphasize the fact that he is not a Greek and he's not writing to Greeks. Now, he's a native of Alexandria. He understands the Greek ways, but he's a Jew. And he has respect for the scriptures first. And he wants to address the Hebrews from that perspective. So he writes more like a rabbi. He writes more as if they're sitting together in the synagogue and having a debate. And that's exactly what he needs to do in order to reach them. 
So that's how we know who it is. Um, and now, what I want you to see is I'm going to give you kind of a rough outline, a breakdown of one way to see the book of Hebrews. And if you want to write this down, you can. I'll give you a reminder when we jump into chapter 1 later. But what we know so far is this is written to Hebrews who are struggling with what do they do with the Old Covenant, and can they embrace Jesus, and, and how do they make a decision when both seem so important from God. And we have an author who is writing to explain to them that they don't have to give up either, that the Old Covenant is not being replaced by the New Covenant so much as it's being fulfilled by the New Covenant. What Jesus said of himself is that no, not one letter of the law will disappear, but he said he came to fulfill the law. So once he's fulfilled it, that's like we've arrived at Santa Fe. We've fulfilled the purpose of the map, right? And so that's what he wants them to see, is that there is no conflict. Because the Old Covenant has always been intended to be a, an instructor, a tutor, a map to the New Covenant. And that's why we can embrace the New Covenant without feeling like we're betraying God's plans. Um, and so that's, that's who the author is. Somebody who understands the scriptures, a Jew, with respect for the Old Covenant, very smart, very learned, uh, very knowledgeable, um, and, um, and someone who's able to persuade people from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So, he does this through a series of better than arguments. He does it through a series of saying, this is better than this. See, part of the trouble is they aren't willing to say that, right? They've got the Old Covenant, they've got Jesus, and they feel awkward about saying one is better than the other. And so Apollos just comes right out and says, look, he is better. He's better because he's the fulfillment. He's better because he's the destination. He's better because he's always been the plan. But he gives them a number of better than arguments to show them how Jesus is better and how the new covenant is better than the old. And that is what the book of Hebrews does, is it goes through with these better than arguments. So, here's how these better than arguments work. First of all, we have Jesus is better than the angels and Moses. And in other words, better than the revelation that came from Mount Sinai. Jesus is better than the angels. That is a really amazing thing to say because I think the indication of to be better than angels and Moses, you have to basically be God. And that is one of the things that the author of Hebrews emphasizes in the first few chapters, is that Jesus is God, that he is divine, that he is part of, the, he is part of what created the world. He is the God that created the world. And so because of that, Jesus is better. All those others are just his creations. Number two, he talks about that Jesus' salvation is better than the Old Covenant. He talks about a number of ways that the Old Covenant was temporary, and it didn't lead to complete salvation. It led to shadows and pictures and hints and, 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 and encouragements of what could be, but never actually got there. Even in the Old Testament, for example, there's a moment where one of the prophets says, I, I gave you these laws so that people could see your heart, that you worshipped me, and then you would follow me, and then you would do what's right. But then the prophet says, but now I see, speaking for God, and God already knew this, but he says it this way, now I see that you can't keep the promises. You can't keep the law. You can't do it because your heart is wrong. Your heart is corrupt. But then he says this, it's Ezekiel. He says, one day I will give you a new heart and a heart that will follow me. And this is part of the new covenant that actually gives us a new nature. It actually gives us a new heart. doesn't mean we never do anything wrong. Get into that later. But it does mean that now, now we've been made new. And that is much better than the old covenant, which simply showed the flaws and the corruption that was in our heart. Uh, and number three, Jesus' rest and promised land are better. They had this promise. They got to the promised land. And then they had nothing but trouble for hundreds of years. <laughs> and I say nothing but trouble. They had moments of rest. But, but there's a 
rest that is promised in the Old Covenant. And there's a promised land promised in the Old Covenant, but it always falls short. Well, Jesus' rest and Jesus' promised land are better than that. And they're better because they're permanent. And lastly, Jesus is a better high priest. Part of the whole system for the Jews was the priesthood, right? Something God instituted very thoroughly, very specifically. So you can't blame them for being very particular about it. God was. And it was very important. The high priest was the way that the Israelite nation could get redemption and could, get, could recover and kind of be God's people again when they messed up, which they did a lot. But Jesus is better than that high priest. And he's not even from the right lineage. So this is important that they understand why this is so. So these are the four things that the author of Hebrews talks about. These better than promises. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus' salvation is better than the old covenant. Jesus' rest and promised land are better. And Jesus is a better high priest. And as we go through Hebrews, though, I want you to think about how these things are true for us as well. Because this isn't just a book written for a group of people that don't exist anymore. You and I are not Hebrews in the first century church. So why does this apply to us? Because we have the same struggles. We have the same struggles of what do we let go of in order to embrace Jesus. And the temptation to always hold on to other ways of life, traditions, ideas that we've had, which are anything but Jesus. And so even in the Christian world, we have so many things we've added to Jesus, to the grace of God, that we've lost track of it. And we think so many other things are necessary. And we need to be able to say clearly and boldly, Jesus is superior to all of it. And so, for example, Jesus is superior to other prophets and gurus, right? Some religions actually say that Jesus is just one of the prophets. If there's anything defining about Christianity, it's Christ. It's not the teachings. It's not the things we do. But it's our belief and recognition that Jesus is superior to all other prophets because he is God. And of course he's superior to the other gurus in our life. But this is hard on a very practical, pragmatic, day-to-day -day basis. We want to trust in the people around us. But we always have to remember Jesus is superior. When there's a conflict, we need to be able to let go of all other gurus, political, philosophical, celebrity, uh, talk shows, whatever. We need to be willing to let go of those gurus and embrace Jesus always. And we need to do it wholeheartedly. You cannot split the difference and do both. Jesus talks a lot about how you can't have two masters, right? You can't love God and money. He says at one point, you have to hate your family to love God. He doesn't really want us to hate our families, but he's pointing out that there's always a moment where our devotion to Christ needs to be so strong that we recognize he's superior to everything else. And so we need to remember that. Jesus is superior to all other prophets and gurus, no matter where we brought them from, no matter where we've grabbed them, no matter how or for what reason we've idolized them. Even if they're good people who've done the right things, they were inferior to Jesus. And a lot of the reasons he gives for being superior to Moses also apply to any of our situations. Number two, Jesus' salvation is better than our ethics. His salvation is better than our own approaches to redemption, than our own ways to try to, to, to get our own redemption. There's so many ways we do it, so many keys to life, so many formulas, and we have got to start letting those go. We've got to recognize without a doubt that Jesus is superior. You know, there's, we, we just, sometimes we, we feel it's naive to say that, right? We, psychology or, or, or certain kinds of science or ethics or philosophy, those seem to have such a veneer of intelligence complexity to them. And then we have just this Sunday school idea of Jesus, which to us seems so simple and small. And we just say, well, I can't, I can't totally embrace Jesus. I have to still hold on to these other ideas of where redemption and salvation comes from. And I, I got to tell you, and the author of Hebrews has got to tell you, no, you got to let go of those. 
You've got to let go of those. And many of those things, just like the Old Covenant for the Hebrews, philosophies and, and science and, and psychology, many of those things may have a, a, a value in pointing you to Jesus. But if they become the Jesus, then they're not value at all. Then they become quite the opposite. Then, they, then the map, if you try to live in the map instead of living in Santa Fe, it's foolish. It's ridiculous. So we have to recognize, too, Jesus' salvation is better than all our other ethics and philosophies and science and psychology and attempts to self-actualization, self-realization. None of those are going to meet the superiority of Jesus' own offer of salvation. Like the Old Covenant, doesn't mean they're always bad, but it means we have to put them in their place. We have to recognize Jesus is superior, and what he offers at the cross is superior to all of that. Number three, Jesus' grace is better than our efforts. Remember the other one was that Jesus' rest and promised land are better than ours. This is another way to say it. His grace is better than our efforts. We have got to get this in our head. This is so hard for us. This is so against the grain of what we've been taught, what we've learned, what our flesh tells us, what the devil wants us to know. And unfortunately, because it's so much against the grain, it also runs against the grain of teachings we've heard or think we've heard. And the, the issue is that we have got to get it clear in our heads that God does not need our efforts to make his grace work. It is the grace of God that saves us. It is the grace of God that redeems us. It is the grace of God that disciples us. Guys, admit it. Just get, get to it and recognize there's nothing in your self-effort which is going to be better than or add to what the grace of God has given you. And, and you, we hear this in all sorts of subtle ways. That we keep saying, well, yeah, I know that God did this for me, but surely he needs me to do this or this or this or that. Does God sometimes ask you to do things? Of course. Does it matter what you do? Yes, but not one iota for your holiness or your salvation and your redemption. <laughs> Those come from the grace of God. You may feel better. You may feel more like you're, you're a fish in water rather than out of water when you do the things God asks you to do because then you're aligning with the holiness God's given you. But it is so important, we understand, that God saved you before you wanted him to, before you asked him to, and he didn't need you to save you. He did it. It is his Grace, free and clear. The power that God has to do good to you and the love, the desire that God has to do good to you. That's how I understand his grace. It's his power and desire to do good to you. And it comes from him and it's all him. And you don't give him extra grace to give back to you. He has it all. And he gives it freely. Man, Jesus' grace is better than our efforts always. 100% of the time. There's never a moment at which it's like, well, probably be better fighting something here. No, you always rely on God's grace. Can God's grace work through you to do things? Yes. But it's always got to be God's grace. We've got to keep that in line that it's always better than our efforts. Always. 100% of the time, no question. Jesus is a better redemption. Bottom line, Jesus is a better redemption. Nothing else can redeem us. Frankly, he's not only a better redemption, he's really the only redemption. But he's better than all the other redemptions we try because he's effective <laughs> and because he's permanently effective. We may think we get redemption in short bursts here and there, but if we do not embrace who Jesus is, we will not move forward. So here's what I want you to think about as you enter the new year. If you're a believer and you're a Christian, I want to challenge you. Turn up the heat on the superiority of Jesus in your estimation. If there's other things that you are counting on, relying on, I, I, I'm not saying that necessarily those are wrong. But I want to challenge you to turn the heat up. Give more reliance upon Jesus. Make yourself more uncomfortable now and then by counting on him where you can't do it. And more than that, 
Find yourself ways to count on him when you can do it. And, and find ways to embrace him this year. And, and ask yourself, what is it that I need to let go of in order to embrace him more fully for my redemption, for my rest, for my grace, for my peace, for my life? Let's make this the year that we turn up the heat on our devotion to Christ and we let go of some of those other things which have caused us nothing but frustration and addiction and problems and guilt and angst and pain and anxiety and disappointment. Does it really sound so bad to let those things go? I know the fear. If we hope in Christ for everything, if we put all our eggs in the Christ basket, then we're really sunk if he turns out to be wrong. But if you're not in that position now, if you don't already think that, if Jesus turned out to be wrong tomorrow, would your life change? If it turned out that Jesus was a myth that never happened, would your life change? Would it change anything about the way you see things? Then you haven't embraced him as fully as I'm challenging you to anyway. I can tell you right now that, that I've committed, I am sunk. If there's no Jesus, I have wasted so much of my life and so much of my time, and I don't even have a clue where to turn next. <laughs> the good news is, I don't think it's foolish to put all your eggs in the God basket. I don't think it's foolish to put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. That's what the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to do. And as we go through Hebrews, it's what I want to encourage you to do. So I want to even challenge you, if you'd like to, read Hebrews 1 between now and next Sunday and contemplate this. Ask yourself, what do I need to let go of? What do I need to do? What, what do I need to do to clearly... And, and clearly recognize the choice of Christ as superior. Now, I mentioned for Christians, I think it's good for us to turn up the heat, embrace that challenge. But what if you're on the fence? What if you're like these Hebrew Christians? You've heard the Messiah. You know who he is. You kind of accept he's the Messiah. But you're still holding out for other things. You're, you're, you're afraid of missing out. If you embrace Jesus for all he is, what if you miss out on the other truth here? I want to challenge you. Let this be the year you tip that scale. Let this be the year you say... I'm going to put all my eggs in the Jesus basket. I'm going to do it. Because I think you will see him come through in some amazing ways. Where you can say, he is my redemption. And let him set you free from those other entanglements which don't work. What if you're not on the fence? What if you're just uh, opposed to Christianity? You're, you're an atheist. I'm not 100% sure why you're listening to me right now, but I'm glad you are. And if you are, I want to challenge you to consider... If Jesus is as superior as the author of Hebrews says, as we go through this book, if Jesus is everything he says, worthy of our adoration, our worship, and our devotion, well, then you need to make a decision about that. You need to at least explore if there's a possibility that's true. Because the deal about the book of Hebrews is there's just no room for having two masters. Jesus doesn't allow it. Just like he pushed the early Hebrews to have to decide they were going to let go of the covenant for their redemption and embrace Jesus, God is challenging you to do the same. If you're sitting here listening to this message, I think God is challenging you to do the same. So I want you to consider that as we go through Hebrews. What are you going to have to let go of and what would it mean to embrace Jesus? Maybe it starts with just accepting the gospel. And if you have questions about that, you probably have friends who know it. You probably have friends who are happy to share it with you. And if you don't, send me an email, shoot me a message. I'm happy to dialogue with you in whatever fashion we can, over the phone, over Zoom, or through email, whatever you want. Or maybe you're, you're, you're on the fence and you already kind of know in your heart of hearts Jesus is it, but you've kind of been holding back. Yeah, don't hold back anymore. It only, it only delays things and causes pain and leads to frustration. G give it all. <laughs> Surrender all, as the song says. And if you are a believer and you really have already done that, let's turn up the heat. 
That's the challenge as we go through Hebrews. It's a new year. Let's let go of the past. Let's let go of where we've been. Let's let go of the other things. And let's move forward into the new covenant, which is vastly superior, into Jesus, who is vastly superior. So that's our introduction to Hebrews. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, I want to remind you, we do have, uh, we'll be here every Sunday night at 6.30 doing Hebrews. We'll, at 6 o'clock, we'll have live worship. Um, we'll be back to our other worship team doing it now and then. Um, and so that's all right. And um, on Wednesdays, we have our midweek faith lift. We go through a psalm. That's about 10 or 15 minutes every week, sometimes even five. We just go through a psalm very quickly. Uh, that's just to give you a little boost throughout the week. Uh, Monday nights, we have the journey. We go chronologically through the entire scriptures. It takes about nine years to do the whole thing. We're on our second go-round. You can jump in at any time. Don't wait until we start over because that's a long time. You can jump in at any time. That's Zoom. That's interactive. So if you want a link to that, let me know. And we'll be happy to have you join us. Um, and, uh, and then our focus groups. As always, our focus groups are where we really do the best job, I think, of learning how to remember the superiority of Jesus and encourage each other towards that that recognition that he is everything we need. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. I hope you have a blessed week. I hope you're just encouraged, uh, just more than you can imagine possible, um, given the things going on around you. But Jesus is superior to everything around you. He is better than anything around you. He loves you more than anyone you've ever met. And he extends a grace to you that's more powerful than you can imagine. So let's find him. It's all worth it. Have a good night. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.